Hello, everybody. Thank you for a special episode of the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. Today, we're going to recap all the great pieces of advice that the professionals and the people that were our guests have given us. And hope you like it, guys. First up is Mike Evans. Mike is the head of intelligence Securitas, And here's what he had to say. Be both a generalist and a jack of all skills and trades. With being a generalist, I have found that I've done my time across my career in various predictive services, private, public, etc. Some of cyber, some bit of fraud, corporate security, etc. Because of that generalist skill set and experience, when posed with a request for intelligence, even if it's something very, very specialist, if you're a generalist, you're always going to have something you can bring to the party. If your focus is super specialist, you know nothing outside of that lane. So let's say you're doing focus on counterterrorism and you're then tasked with something that is very cyber technical. Yes, you may be able to apply something to it, a little bit of left of field or right of field thinking, but you may not be able to go as deep into it as a generalist would, or indeed be able to think of something completely left or right of field as a generalist. And with the kind of jack of all trades and skills remark, I saw a really interesting post today on LinkedIn and, and it's, I, it slipped my mind who posted it, but it was essentially kind of a, a, a medium blog talking about the other skills that they had learned or, or developed as part of their career with intelligence. It's talking about being a good graphic designer, good at being a salesperson, even stand-up comic. And if you're listening to this, you're going to know who you are. I wrote that because the last point was being a stand-up comic. And, and yes, you hate my bad dad jokes, but they do love them really deep down, right? But if, if you were able to be a jack of all trades and skills, you know, being able to walk into that room and network, but also have the ability to stand up and give a presentation or put together a database to do some analysis, et cetera, that's really important. So, so generalist intelligence skill set and the ability to adapt to whatever is required of you, because that is actually what intelligence is all about. It's constantly developing that picture and looking ahead to provide that assessment so that the customers are indeed informed and in control. Yeah. Do you think that being a generalist is very suitable for people in roles like yourself or mine? Maybe not so for people who is just starting out? Or do you feel that too? I think what happens is that you start off as an element of a generalist covering multiple desks or subject matters when you first get into the field, unless you are being hired into a very, very specific role. And I think as you as you start to go up that career ladder a little bit, you your your focus narrows. But what happens as you continue up the career ladder is it, it opens back up again because people up and down the career chain beneath and above you and around you will look to you as the font of all knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that I am fully versed in every geopolitical development on a day-in, day-out basis, but by maintaining a good level of awareness of what's going on, but also leveraging that experience and skill set from previous, whenever someone comes to you and goes, what do you think about this? You may not know the current ins and outs, but you'll be able to you know, dig into your basic intelligence background and go, hey, what, what about this? What happens if it did this based on that that's happened before or uh, another assessment that you've cooked up? So I think you start off, and I think the majority is you start off generalist, unless you're specialist hired, is a squeeze in your career that begins to narrow your focus a little bit. But as you continue up, you are going to need to, to brush off and dust off that, that generalist knowledge and skill set not just from you know what's happening in the world, but also, hey, I'm required to do an internal presentation today or a customer presentation tomorrow or you know, go be a stand-up comic. Yeah. And speaking of the stand-up comic, one of the things that I try to teach young analysts is have a bit of humor in your briefings, even if it's a serious subject. Absolutely, absolutely critical. Again, it's, it's, it's humanizing things. And we deal with some very serious subjects, very serious, and these can have significant impact on individuals if not in in the there in the moment but later on so being able to to humanize things is, is key you know it's not you know make too much fun of, of serious subjects as it were but by allowing it to be engaging not only are you going to make the process better 
but you're going to make the the experience better. And as, as you and I discussed earlier, right, some of the things that we we talk about can spark off a lot of opinion and a lot of debate because some people will be behind some some protests, some will be behind and supportive of campaigns by threat actors in other part of the world because of you know religious or social or economic implications. So we, we need to focus on the fact that what we do is intelligence and not opinion. And sometimes we will have to deal with sort of matters that you know, maybe we're not comfortable with, maybe others aren't comfortable with, but it's not personal. It is, it is business and, and, we, and we have to encounter these things. We have to manage them because they, they potentially do pose a threat or indeed an opportunity for us to, to grab with both hands. Absolutely. And to, to go a little bit, deeper into the, into young analysts, uh, you mentioned that you guys were hiring. What is something you look for in, in, in new hires? I think the one thing that I look for the, the most, and you can kind of tell this within the first couple of minutes or so is someone that is hungry for it. And that can come across by you know, the quality of their answers. It can come across through their, 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 their engagement with you. And, and not everyone interviews well. I will, I will signpost that. Not everyone interviews well, but you can almost tell if someone is hungry for it. And it's also things like, and we work in intelligence. So my, one of my favorite questions is, and so what do you know about the role? And what do you know about the department or the business? If they want to work in Intel, they'd have done their due diligence. They'd done their collection beforehand. If, if they're coming into that with a, oh, I don't know, I just want to work in intelligence, you kind of sit in there going, that's great. But are you hungry for it? That's really good. I'm going to remember that. You can steal that one. Uh, <laughs> I, will, I definitely will. Next is the Director of Investigations at the Center of Information Resilience, Benjamin Strick. Benjamin is a leading OSINT professional and is a contributor at Bellingcat and was an investigator at BBC Africa Eye. Enjoy. I think if you want, if, if you're... If you're in a job already and you want to pick up a familiarization of open source, training is perfect. If you want to, if you're a manager or you're an analyst and, and, uh, and, and you want to become aware of open source or pick up some cool tricks and tips, do training. But if you want to be an OSINT professional or an investigator and you want to do this for a living and, and be a, be a figure, be a, be a standalone investigator. Pick your niche and work on it and grind on that niche and those tools and learn how to break those tools, use them creatively in ways that others would not have thought of um, and really get in there so that you're, you're kind of self-implementing a train-the-trainers model. We work in capacity development. like That is our bread and butter at, at the work that I do with, with the NGO I'm with. And we have two aspects we do the kind of three to five day workshops on capacity building and, and awareness raising. And that's so that managers or, or, or professionals existing in, in, in different environments are aware and can maybe do some cool tricks with open source. But with the train the trainers model, we get an investigation and they work on it and they push themselves exploring the depths of creativity. And I think that at the end of the day creates a far better model because those people are now training organizations and training individuals. And it's only because they have the confidence in investigations and they, they know the tools in and out that they're able to do that. So I think with, with training, it depends on who you are and, and what you want to be. Hope you liked it. Another leading figure in the OSINT community is Skip Skiphorst of iIntelligence, Skip is an OSINT instructor that teaches how to investigate Chinese and Arabic OSINT. And he was also a Dutch Royal Marine for nearly 17 years. And he's a good friend. I, I know there's a lot of people, I get lots of messages from people saying, hey, how do you, how do you make it in OSINT? Uh, find something you're passionate about. Uh, we In OSINT, I think we all need to be jack of all trades a bit, generalists. Okay but I think it's important to find your sweet spot. Yeah. For me, it was languages. It might be environmental protection. It might be other things like uh, anti-human trafficking. It's very important, right? These things, find a thing you're super passionate about and just capitalize on that and just learn all you can. Learn if you can program, if you're good at that, if this is a language you do speak, go for it and learn how you can apply that to, uh, to human trafficking, 
maybe uh, conservation, energy, global warming, anything there is, and do that. And just and don't be scared to to reach out to people that are that have been you know um, strong players in the industry, whether it's OSINT with geolocation. Reach out to those, right? There's some great people out there that are really skilled at it. If this is something you find interesting, you know, if you're a good OSINTer, you're going to find them online. You're going to find a way to reach out to them, find their email address, call them up, and just hit them up, right? People, uh, I mean, I certainly don't mind being 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 sent messages to 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 help people. I know I didn't know everything before. You can't, right? So reach out to people, and there's so many resources online. There's tutorials. There's there's GitHub. There's a lot to find yourself to self-educate you, and then just uh, um, be proficient in the open source intelligence field. Definitely, yeah. It's the wild west. Let's put it that yeah. way. I, I really it's, see it as a term I've been using for about a few weeks. It is the wild west, it and it's uh, it find a place you like, claim it, put your flag on that, and just uh, strive in it. It is. It's 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 really, and probably that's why there's so much differences in quality, differences in viewpoints. Differences in execution in OSINT. It is really like a period in time, as you said, to to like really distinguish distinguish yourself from the um, from the pack. The amount of people, I, I I swear, if you could count the amount of people that had OSINT in their bio today, compared to let's say five years ago, it would be a very stark difference. So, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I really. I echo everything you said, and, and uh, I agree completely. But it's always been there, Ahmed, right? Yeah. OSINT has always yeah, been yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting new. Uh, like, like my colleague says, the most powerful uh, OSINT tool there is is a library card, yeah. right? Yep, you're going to have to read. Whether it's beyond a screen or in a book, read, read, read uh, as much as you can. Become a subject matter expert about things. Yeah. Just, uh, keep reading. And then keep reading. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then repeat. And, and the thing also is like, what is it? Uh, like, I think it's, it's, a, it's an intelligent scholar who said it. I think it was William Agrell, which is a Swedish scholar, one of the more, more well-known intelligence studies scholars. And um, he, he has a quote where he says, you know, if everything is intelligence, nothing is intelligence. And that's exactly the same for OSINT. If everything is OSINT, nothing is. Right? So... Um, just, you know, look at... That's interesting. You know, look at governments, look at what everybody's doing, you know, and, you know, try to find your structure and the way you do things. And and I think you can, uh, you can go very far in this field. There's some brilliant people out there. And, you know, I, and definitely I think you're, you're one of them. And, uh, and uh, some will be on this podcast, some haven't been on this podcast. And yeah, I really, um, really appreciate you you're doing this and, and, uh, and joining me. And uh, it's always lovely to have a fellow Dutchman on the podcast, which is the first time. I don't know how many, I know there's in OSIN, there's, there's a, a great number of OSIN people. Um, yeah. Like the guys from OSIN Curious and uh, Michael Hoffman. Yep, definitely. Nico. Nico, definitely. Micah is a great guy. So there's a couple of people in, um, yeah, so well represented, small in stature, big in deeds. All right. So next up, Jordan Ponath. Uh, Jordan is giving us insight into the private sector. Jordan is a senior intelligence analyst at Lockheed Martin and a U.S. Marine veteran. He discusses professional growth and leadership strategy that helps him stay on top. I would say for someone who is young and they know they want to get into this space, they just don't necessarily know how. And, you know, it's funny. I've been asked this questions at least a half a dozen times over the past couple of years by, you know, different college grads on LinkedIn. Like, hey, I see what you do. You know, I want to do something more or less the same. Something I tell them that might be a little more pragmatic is understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to just walk onto a threat intel team with, with little to no experience and just your undergrad and, and, and start contributing. That's at least been in my experience find ways where you can kind of get your skin in the game and earn your keep and show a team that you're capable of, you know, something more. And so personally for me, that was me being a contracted watch officer, more or less an, a junior intelligence analyst doing work that I would describe, you know, it wasn't awesome. I, I didn't go into work every single day excited like I am today. Um, 
I didn't see a lot of meaning in the work that I was doing. And that was just because it was such low level triage work that, you know, I didn't see all that meaning in it, but I saw kind of where that job could lead. And I saw teams doing awesome things that I wanted to do. And I knew if I kind of stuck it out and I made a positive impression doing kind of this, this crappy work, if you will, I knew that in the end, I would be afforded an opportunity to jump on one of those teams doing the work I actually wanted to do. And, and that actually worked out. And so pragmatically for the, those newer kind of college grads, I would say try and find a, a GSOC or some type of contracting company who's providing some type of analytical capability to a big client and see if you can jump on one of those teams. In my experience, they're not necessarily looking for a lot of experience. They just need someone who's living and breathing and who can think rationally to have their butt in a chair and be able to do some work for them. And so I think if that young grad is willing to stick it out for a few years, kind of, you know, slug it out in the trenches, show that they're capable, show that they're willing to learn and show that they have lots of potential, I think they would see very quickly that, you know, a lot of opportunities will open up to them. And kind of in addition to that, and this, I might loop this in between the, the young, kind of new grad and someone who wants to change careers. And I actually made a post about this on LinkedIn earlier last week is, yes, you know, you want to be an OSINT analyst or you want to kind of get into this world, but find something that you find interesting that can aid you as an analyst. It could be, you know, if, if you have an aptitude for languages, you know, maybe you become a regional subject matter expert, if you will, on whatever kind of language you want to speak. So if, if you want to speak you know, or if you want to, you have a, some type of aptitude toward learning Mandarin and you want to become kind of a China expert, more or less, awesome. Go down that route while you're developing your kind of generic OSINT skills. Also become kind of, you know, the China or the Asia Pacific SME, if you will. Personally, for me, I'm a like self-proclaimed data nerd. Like I will admit, I'm, I'm kind of a data nerd, data geek guy. So data science and machine learning was a very easy transition for me. And I've been able to take kind of, my aptitude for science and machine learning and have it benefit my team. And so I would say find a skill, a region that could be a threat actor or a group and focus on that, focus on that and become an expert at it. So that way you can show an organization, you know, not only am I developing as an analyst, but I also have a capability that I can bring. I have a set of knowledge that I can bring to the team that no one else really has. And it helps you kind of stand apart. So yeah, I would say that for kind of young guys trying to get into the club and and the career kind of shift people. I would also say for the career shift, something I did when I got out of the military that I found pretty fruitful was using LinkedIn. I didn't mean for LinkedIn to become as a, a big part of kind of what I do for work as it is, but it's it's honestly a huge part. And I've been able to make some amazing connections and find some awesome information through LinkedIn of all places. And so what I would suggest to someone who's wanting to do a career shift is find the big names in OSINT or the big organizations, whether it's, you know, SANS, the OSINT Curious Project, or like open source intelligence techniques, and find the key leaders in those organizations, in those groups, and, you know, follow, follow them on LinkedIn, or, or reach out to them and see if you can ask them a few questions, and kind of grow your network and, and see, you know, where opportunities might, might exist. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, you join LinkedIn, and then you follow a few people, and the next day you start getting job opportunities. But if you just kind of stick with it and grow your network, I mean, I'll be honest, over a year or so of kind of me being very diligent and growing my network on LinkedIn, there's at least a handful of people I know I can go to right now who I've never met, but we have somewhat of a relationship on LinkedIn that I can go to and say, hey, do you have any job opportunities either for myself, another team member, or maybe, you know, some, some kid that, I, that I'm mentoring who's getting ready to graduate college who wants to get into the this, into this space. And so having that at hand um, is priceless. I second that. That's how we met. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, kind of a side note on LinkedIn, I didn't expect the amount of tools that I'd be exposed to through LinkedIn. It's insane. The it's almost like LinkedIn's becoming kind of a source for OSINT tools. I mean, people are going in there every single day. Absolutely. And saying, Hey, here's this new Python tool to to collect this or to see this, or here's this new library of tools or this new person. I've been exposed to so many tools and so many resources through LinkedIn. It, it's amazing, frankly. So I would say to you know the OSINT analysts out there, whether you're new, kind of mid-career, or you want to start up kind of a threat intel team, being on LinkedIn and being exposed to the OSINT community is, is awesome. 
speaking to kind of the people who want to start an organization, and we, we talked about this earlier, I think it's absolutely critical that those leaders or those individuals need to have very, very, very clear requirements on what they want that team to do. I, I, I think there might be some leaders out there who heard about OSINT from, you know, everything going on with the war in Ukraine and how popular OSINT's been. And they say, oh, you know, OSINT's a sexy new buzzword. We need an OSINT team. I don't know what I want them to do, but we need one of those. I don't think that's the right approach. Those, those leaders and those individuals need to have very clear requirements about what risks they know exist or that they need to mitigate and build a team around those and set very clear requirements for what they want that team to do. Because if you have a team that has very open requirements, you know, you're probably not going to have satisfactory results that you want. But if you set very clear requirements and KPIs for what you want that team to do and how you're going to measure their performance, it's going to set you up for success. Thank you for that, Jordan. Next up, Dronesec CEO, Mike Monink. Mike is next with the advice on honing your skill set and the importance of being passionate about your work. An incredible podcast that I've done with Mike, and it's up there as one of my favorites. One of the key pieces of tactical advice I'd give if, if they really were young and starting out in the area, the first yeah. is, is no zero days, right? So don't have a day ever where you take off not learning or reading something about the industry mm -hmm. you're trying to get in or just communicating with them, going to meet up, collaborating with them in that space, right? Super powerful, both the networking and, and discipline, right? Not a, not a motivational thing, which is a, a single spurt of energy. You're disciplining yourself to be involved in that industry over time. And you'll slowly get to the point where you'll know who's who in the zoo. And you'll be able to tap on shoulders when you need that role or when you want to find out how you can add value. Probably the other thing is having a home lab. So no matter what, being able to replicate a very small version of what you want to end up doing, um, whether that is intelligence collection, you can start off with, with OSINT gathering, right? And create a portfolio out of examples of what you've done to demonstrate to a future employer what kind of, even capture the flag, CTF examples or, or challenges you've done. Just have a home lab, build up your tool set, get to know the main tools that you see in those you know, job ads or resume applications and build up your familiarity with them. So home lab is one. I think if you're applying to get into the industry, mine's been a bit of a meandering path from you know, cybersecurity to physical security mm -hmm. to then intelligence. And as I said, the background of our team members is some were flying drones, some were in Intel teams, some were fast jet pilots. Others just built robots, right? And some were hackers. So at the end of the day, you have to be very creative and good at especially one thing. And I say that because, you know, I've known people who were, uh, who were chefs and cooks and they got into security. And it's just that driving passion of working the long hours that they could put in and, and learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think whatever your background is, we need your background because it adds a flavor to what we're looking at. And a lot of intelligence, they do want an opinion on things. They want to form a context from the way you see the world. It also helps with forming you know, what that picture might look like. So combining that all together, I think should be a, a pretty good start for someone looking to uh, transition across. And from an industry, from a company that wants to have an internal or an external threat intelligence functionality, what advice would you give them? Well, look, if you're after drone threat intelligence, so you could contact me. <laughs> that's that's the self-plug of the day. No, we, we, we do focus on finished intelligence and making sure we're both broad and deep on the, the topics of, uh, and mm -hmm. intelligence that our customers need. If, if you're starting out, and I think you've got to be careful about just trying to put together an intelligence function without the people who are trained and, and understand that area, of course. But look, open source intelligence can tell you a lot today publicly available information without getting into to the weeds of sensitive and restricted information, right? So there's a lot you mm -hmm. can currently do with open source tooling. I think a methodology is great to be able to stick by and be able to utilize. OPSEC mm -hmm. is super important, making sure you're protected when you've got SOC puppet accounts or you're in certain chat groups or areas where you don't want to burn yourself or your company. And, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're in intelligence and you're serving the good guys, the bad guys are always going to see you as a target. So keep the information limited and your security heightened and your finger on the, the pulse, right? Thank you, Mike. Next up, 
is Paul Shara. I'm a big fan of Paul. Paul Shara is the Vice President and Director of Studies at Center for New American Security. Paul is discussing career pathways and the job market of the future in regard to AI. I mean, I had kind of a wandering career path, right? Moving from, I started out mm -hmm. as a rifleman in the, you know, an infantry platoon in the Army's Ranger Regiment to, to now being an author at a think tank and writing books about technology. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for things like follow your passions, try things out. I probably changed not just jobs, but careers four or five times before I landed on where I eventually ended up settling in the national security world and, and continuing to, to grow and develop. And I tried a lot of different things and learned a lot about what I was, what I enjoyed doing and what I didn't enjoy doing. And I think that's really valuable. Sometimes you never really know until you try something out. I think there's a lot to be said for particularly when you're young and you're not tied down with maybe a family and kids and a mortgage uh, that might come later in life, taking opportunities to mm -hmm. do things that might be harder later, right? Travel, go overseas, take advantage of that freedom to get those experiences and they'll pay dividends later. And I think sometimes people, it's not a new insight, but it's worth mentioning. I think sometimes people pay more attention than you should to things like status and credentials and should be paying more attention to investing in yourself. And what are the skill sets that you're going to gain? Think to yourself like, okay, if I'm going to go take this opportunity, whether it's an education or a fellowship or a job or, you know, going overseas to, to do something, what am I going to learn? How am I going to come out of this different? And what skills am I going to gain? Because in some ways you, you're gaining all of these different professional skills that then over time, you know, they'll stick with you and you're, uh, they tend to pay compounding dividends in the long run. Thank you for that. I, I want to ask you a, a follow-up question to that, more towards your, your expertise and your research. What do you think is important in the job market of tomorrow to prepare for today, where things like ChatGPT and these type of technologies are playing more of a role? Well, the thing that struck me about these generative AI systems that have really just exploded on the scene in the last year, both text generation like ChatGPT and then these AI generative tools is like that are generating AI generated art, is how much there's been this immediate sort of moral panic and backlash against using them. And so, you know, people saying, oh, it's wrong to use ChatGPT to generate text. You know, it's wrong for students to be using it, writing essays and they're cheating or artists saying this is wrong. It's stealing people's art. And there are some, I think, important societal things to think about. Like there are interesting questions with AI art generators about whether it's allowable under copyright law, at least in the U.S., different countries have different laws here, but in the U.S., whether it's allowable under current copyright law to train an AI model on copyrighted images. And that's an open legal question, and, and we're going to have to iron that out. But this broader idea that you know, we shouldn't be using AI tools is, I would say, from a professional development standpoint, not a way to say make yourself marketable in the long run. These tools are coming. They're coming for everyone. They're going to they're gonna absolutely change our jobs. Text generation will radically transform writing itself. Now, that's going to take a while to happen. Because in some cases, there are generational changes here. But if you look at other tools like word processors and spell check and, you know, for math calculators, there were the same kinds of concerns about using these. And the answer is, well, some of the things that we used to test people on, you know, being able to memorize multiplication tables and stuff, well, then we have calculators. And so that's not the math skill that we actually care about. Now we care about mathematical reasoning and being able to understand mathematical concepts and take a real world problem and translate it into, you know, something that you can put into a calculator. Like that's the math skill that people need to know. And so figuring out how to use these tools effectively, I think is going to be vitally important. And, you know, if you're a professional who's saying, well, I'm just not going to use this, I think you're probably putting yourself at a disadvantage. Now, as a practical matter, in the near term, because there's such controversy about it, you know, I think people need to be cautious about how they're using it 
actually in practice, right? So if you're working somewhere, I work at a think tank, if you're working somewhere where writing is part of your profession and you know you turn in something using chat GPT, A, you're still responsible for that text. So if it's wrong or full of a bunch of errors or make stuff up, like that's, you know, your name's on it. And also like people may not find that acceptable, right? If you're a reporter, if you're a researcher, they may not be acceptable. But I would say leaning into experimenting with figuring out what it can do and what it can't is going to be really important in the long run. And you want to try to better understand it because these social norms are going to change over time. And we want to be able to, if you want to be successful, find the ways to harness some of this technology and use it to your advantage. Next up, Lucas Weber of the Militant Wire on the importance of self-promotion and reaching out to others in the industry. That's a piece of advice that's given a lot. So that's that must be a good piece of advice then. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really break into the industry and write for mm-hmm. the prominent publications. And a lot of them want to see, for instance, you know, your past writings, writing samples, but that's very hard if, if you can't break in and have writing samples from quality publications. So I advocate networking with editors of various outlets and also diversifying your bylines across different outlets to build up your resume and your writing portfolio. And a lot of people, they're also understandably shy or humble, so they don't want to promote their own work. But I say that you should aggressively promote your own work and you should be proud of it because no one's going yeah. to see it if you're not tweeting it out or putting it on LinkedIn or and you should also ask people perhaps with a lot of followers if they would help you spread awareness of your article and share it don't be afraid to ask people that even if you don't know them and it's it's nothing for these people mm-hmm. to uh, you know retweet your article or quote tweet it or Uh, make a comment about it. So uh, this is how you get recognized and you can really uh, build your personal profile and build uh, international awareness of your expertise and your work. So basically be bold, but be polite. Next up, our very own Alec Bertina. Alec is a researcher now and also an analyst at Great Dynamics. He shares some advice he picked up while researching Russian private military contractors that you probably have seen during our PMC week coverage? So the first thing is to not ignore cultural factors and to ignore understandings of political systems. So I would say, for example, a big problem with people assessing Prigozhin is that they assume things about the Russian system that isn't true. The Putin is so unintelligent that he would assign a massive formation to someone that can't be controlled. I would also understand that, specifically if you're doing anything Russia-related, you have to understand that the system works around this premise of making sure that people's self-interest can be used in ways that are expedient to the state. So for example, people would ask, why is Wagner still around if it's causing so much of a headache? And why are there so many issues of like this disunity of command that's visible in Russia? And the answer is, is because Putin probably wants some form of competition between these entities. If he can use their self-interest to make them try and perform as effectively as possible, because there's been sloppiness from the MOD, that's just been downright laziness or lack of maintenance of equipment, like pretty elementary stuff. So Putin has decided if there is some form of competition, this might serve the war effort positively. The issue there is that, you know, you have to balance that self-interest in ways that doesn't shoot the Russian state in the foot itself. And again, understanding all of this requires some basis of understanding the temperament of the people that are at the upper echelons of power. It it revolves understanding history because all of this is formed out out of the back of the collapse of the USSR. And all these details, like, they should not be discounted. You shouldn't just be consulting PMC literature and say, oh, right, okay, I guess I can transfer my knowledge to Wagner. It's not that simple. You have to get the cultural context in there. I would also say the obvious stuff is just keep yourself safe. Don't contact people that are don't want to be contacted in ways that are dangerous. This is I know this sounds juvenile and maybe patronizing mm-hmm. to people, but it's a very big point. These dudes who are in these formations running them, they're scary. <laughs> they're scary people. 
Uh, they've killed journalists in the Central African Republic. They don't want to be found out. So I use a lot of open sources and there is a lot that you can use there. Speaking to these people who are actually in these formations is not only dangerous, as I mentioned, it can also be stupid in that they, and this is common for a lot of Russian actors, will lie to you about what they're doing. And I've seen this problem very much in journalism where they've like said, oh, we're going to speak to someone in Wagner. We've spoken to someone in Wagner. He's assured us of this and that. And there's a failure to understand that there is an incentive to lie to journalists. There's an incentive to lie to you if you're researching this sort of stuff. I'll give you a good example of this. So it doesn't just seem like I'm making this up. There is a former Wagner commander called Marek Gabdulin, And he was quite big in the press. Uh, because he was the first guy who really came out and said, like, this is how these things work. And he's done a lot of work with another investigative journalist called Vladimir Sechkin. And one thing that people have ignored is that when Murak Abdulin, he was a commander in Syria, of all places, and he fails deliberately to mention the extent of Wagner's cruelty when it was operating in Syria. He's assigned bad instances, for example, the person who was tortured and mm -hmm. beheaded on camera. I think his name was Hamidi Bouti, Balta, or something like that. Marek Abdullah has deliberately tried to understell how cruel Wagner was in that region and tried to label it as a few bad apples. And that's because he's a former Wagner guy himself and he's covering for himself. And I've seen too many journalists not being able to understand that fact and to try and factor it in within their analysis. So that kind of speaks to a second point, which is you actually need to try and get a good profile of the people within these organizations. Temperament, what drives them? For example, Brigozhin, it's ambition. It's also the fact that he wants to have more power than he presently has. So the reason why he's reaching out for this attention is not because he's already powerful. He wouldn't need to do this if he was already so powerful. It's to acquire more power at the detriment of others because he hasn't got that yet. So yeah, understanding people is going to help you a lot as well. So I would say those two things uh, off the top of my head would probably be the most useful things I could suggest if you want to look into this stuff. Thank you, Alec. And next up is Jonah Lev. Uh, Jonah is the Conflict Armament Research uh, Director of Operations. And uh, he talks about what skills Conflict Armament Research looks for uh, and making an impact on the policy level. Yeah, I think that, so look, we have, our staff has a range of skills and backgrounds. And also not all of our staff goes into the field and does the kind of field documentation work. If, if that's what you're interested in, I would say the common denominator is there's, there's very few people out there who have like weapons, technical experience, coupled with field experience and, and diplomatic experience. So marrying those things together is very difficult. So we tend now to hire people who can demonstrate that you can drop them out of a helicopter in any conflict and they can hit the ground running. They have the kind of veracity and the resources and capacity at their disposal to facilitate and make the kind of connections and network that they need to get the meetings, present the, the information that is needed to establish access, form trusted relationships with national partners. And then we conduct the training to show them how to properly safely handle weapons, how to properly document them. You know, we do have SAP obviously that come in with, with some weapon technical intelligence background, but I would say for the most part, you know, we've hired journalists. Of course, they have that background, you know, running around these, these places and, and getting information, conducting investigations. So that background is kind of similar. We do have some former military who, yeah, oftentimes they have the, the, the weapon experience, but may not necessarily have the diplomatic experience. Some of them do, some of them don't. So it's, it's usually a bit of a hodgepodge, but in either case, you know, we foster that development, trying to develop the full spectrum of skills that are required to do this work, which is not only going into conflicts to document weapons, but it's being able to take that information, understand it, translate it into products that can affect change and impact decision-making at very high levels at the policy level. So, and then going to actual international forums and conferences and presenting on the work that you've done. Because at the end of the day, 
there's nothing I think more impactful or more kind of genuine than someone who has actually just come from a place of conflict and then brought that information to a conference and is presenting on that rather than someone who's been sort of studying it from a more academic or, or research perspective from afar. It's certainly the, the kind of feedback that we get from policymakers and other practitioners who are doing similar work, you know, may not get the kind of access that we get in the areas that we work, really, really uh, appreciate the information and data that we're able to present and inform, you know, the conversations and debates around what are the answers to these problems and conflicts that, that we're all working towards solving. Next is uh, D. D is a friend. Uh, he's a former Australian military intelligence humanter and an all-around fantastic guy. He's discussing how to get in this line of work and his experience around that. I always recommend anyone that wants to join an intelligence service, whether it be military, law enforcement, or strategic agencies, just to do it, apply, because the experience is that you'll get a second to none. And the way you, like you, you have the world at your fingertips, the amount of information and access that you'll get. I encourage people to be an analyst first, before specializing, that's something that I didn't do. And I've always felt that I was lacking in the analytical perspective in the sense that I'll do a report and my first, and we, we did a first line analysis on what we think it is. And I, and I could do it, but I never felt strong in that department. And I have something that I have to, in my, in my, 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 you know, my grammar's rubbish. <laughs> the way I speak okay. is very, very basic. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm a big caveman and it. The, the forest gump of the, probably the human community ah, in the world. It. And, uh, that's something that I felt was lacking, but it hadn't stopped me. You know, if you have the basic skills, it, we can, we can raise an analyst or a source operator out of that. People towards the end of their careers, you know, you, you have to reach a point where you realize there's nothing left to do, or there's nothing that fulfills you and gives you that drive. Uh, it's a very competitive environment and I, and I strongly encourage people to look into the, the contracting and education space as well. You know, it's something that's, that's out there and depending on where you look, there's always going to be really good opportunities to develop. And I think you'll find that second wind or that second purpose, which was, which a lot of people lack, uh, after a certain, you know, especially being 20 years in the same organization and yeah. certain role, you, you start, it starts getting a bit easy and for you and you're not challenged. Thank you, D. Next up is Kelly Wong. Kelly is security analyst for the Canadian Senate. She discussed the importance of perseverance in the industry. Uh, Kelly is a uh, fantastic professional and um, her story is very inspirational. Enjoy. I would, the, the advice that I would, I would leave is to stay the course. It isn't easy. Often from myself, when I see the profiles or I hear the, the professional journeys of other people in the industry, it can be intimidating because you see these profiles, you see all of the, the successes, but again, as we said, you don't see the, the struggles, you don't see the sometimes even the, the failures that came with that. So the advice that I would give, it's more of a, I would say, a, I don't know, a character or a, or a motivation is to to stay the course and to understand that this was not built in a day it it took a long time to build and that as a young professional in this field it will take the time that it needs to take to where you need to get but to also not be shy to reach out to to those persons with those profiles if you see them either via linkedin or you read one of their papers or you listen to a podcast and you hear of them don't be shy to reach out because through networking that that itself opens so many doors and last but not least brian stern brian delivers our final piece of advice Brian is a U.S. intelligence veteran with the U.S. Navy with experience all around the globe commenting many different issues. He's also the founder of the fantastic Project Dynamo, a nonprofit that specializes in getting people out of dangerous and isolated conflict zones. This is a one for the ages. Ooh, there's a lot of advice. Number one, uh, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, 
stay in school, get good grades. The big thing that I tell people is I get asked, you know, what language should I learn? Right? I get that all the time. I tell people only learn a language that you can master. It does you not much, a little bit of benefit, but if, if you have the same Mandarin capability of a two-year-old, I don't know that the, yeah. that the you know, it, it's like when I travel, what I do is I have a list of 20 or 30 phrases. Please, hello, thank you. Where's the bathroom? Don't shoot. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, help me, right? And before I travel, I always kind of try and memorize as many of those as I can of whatever language, whatever the languages of where I'm going. That's great advice. And I always have a printout. I always have a printout of that with me in the language, right? So like, a, like just a, a pocket translator. Mm-hmm. That way if Google Translate isn't working, and I love Google Translate, but if Google Translate isn't working, I have something I can yeah. point to. So I, things like that. And the biggest advice that I give people is always, mm-hmm. always be polite. It is really, mm-hmm. really easy to become a jerk. But once you're assessed to be a jerk, it's really hard to recover from that. I, it's amazing how far you can get in places by being polite and almost a little goofy. Yeah. Uh, just a little goofy, yeah. right? So if, you, if you're one of these guys that, you know, I'm a former infantry Marine and you walk around and I just want to project strength, well, that's how people kick your ass. Yeah. That makes people want to punch you in the face, especially overseas. Yeah. I'm overweight. I'm gray. I'm old. If you look at me, I'm not a threat to anybody. Nobody looks at me and is afraid of anything. Oh. And being being disarming, being disarming is is a is a really, really, really good way to to get really far in a lot of these crazy places. And it is an art to be disarming. It, it is not and it's it's very difficult for Americans to be disarming. Americans are loud and obnoxious and all those things. It's it's sometimes not in our nature, at least in, in the West, and, and uh, certainly not in England. You know, the Five Eyes community to be not strong. So there's a there's a difference between pretending to be compliant and actually being compliant. Right? I I you know, I have this thing I, when I teach this stuff. I call it the Jeepers Creepers defense. Mm-hmm. Right? Jeepers Creepers. Right? So you get in trouble. You get in trouble by whoever, and they're accusing. You know, they're they're saying, "Well, it says right here. You know, we have a picture of this or whatever it is." And it's amazing how if you go, "Well, Jeepers Creepers, your officer," I just I have no idea what you're talking about. Jeepers Creepers, I'm just a <laughs> I'm just a dumb American. I turned left. I thought I was lost. Now I'm found. Here I am. And it's amazing how you can embrace some stupidity as weakness. That will get you far. Mm. And I think practicing that, learning how to be, or learning how to project weakness and being disarming can be very, very, very beneficial if you're working, especially if you're working by yourself. That's probably the single most beneficial piece of advice that anybody has given on this podcast, really. The last part when you said, you know, being a bit goofy and, you know, how disarming that is. And, and, and you know, and I think, because people travel all the time, they don't have to be doing any dangerous work, but, but traveling anywhere, it can really help out to be disarming. And yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really good advice. And I think that's somebody that anybody can do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in, the, in, in America, I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially in the military community, you know, where we're designed to be aggressive and fighters, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's okay. That's okay when you're backed up by F-16s. But when you're on the street by yourself in Adidas and all you have is your wits and what's in your pockets, acting aggressive is a great way to get punched in the face. Yeah. So so I think I think those things and then I have rules, things that that I never ever from a from a street perspective that I never violate. You know, like I, I always wear shoes with laces. Always. You'll you will never see me in public in a pair of flip flops. Mm-hmm. Ever, 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 ever. Unless I'm on a beach. And in that case, I wear shoes and I carry my flip flops from at the beach, yeah. because I can't run because I can't run in flip flops, right? Sure. I keep copies of my passport. I keep multiple laminated copies of, of my passport uh, in different places on my body. I always have cash on me. Always have cash. I'm always assuming that I, 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 I and when I do things, every single thing that I do 
doesn't matter what. Whoever I'm talking to, wherever I'm going, if I go into a restaurant, everything, I have a reason as to why I'm, even if it's, I, I assume that at any moment, some local security service guy is going to grab me up and say, hey, you, who are you? What are you doing here? Where are you from? And give me 20 questions. And I like that. I, I have I, everything I do, I have those answers. And I think about them very methodically. When I pull up to a meeting, before I get out of the car, I think to myself, if I'm asked, where did I come from? Where am I going? And that way, if I get, if I get in trouble, because I was walking around like an angry American, let's say, I have really good, thoughtful answers, and very often I'll practice my answers so that the first time I'm giving those answers, my the muscles of my face have actually done this once already, right? So, so it's not, you know, because when, when you're under duress, it's very easy to see when someone's thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. And creating. I don't want to be creative. I want to use the analytical side of my brain because that's what law enforcement is looking for. Mm-hmm. They're looking to see if I'm creating, you know, mm-hmm. you have someone, a question and the answer somehow is on the roof. Somehow, yeah. somehow <laughs> everyone looks at the ceiling when they're not, right? Yeah. And, and if they're not doing that, they're looking down. Yeah. Well, the answer isn't on the ceiling or the floor. Mm-hmm. Why are you, you know? So I, so I do, I do things like that to practice, but to, you know, from a, from a training perspective, the thing I tell everybody is learn as much as you can about as many different things as possible. It doesn't matter what. You would not believe what I know as a career intel guy about textiles, about how to make clothes, yeah. how to make t-shirts, yeah. how to make badges. has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but I can have a really intelligent conversation with any textile manufacturer <laughs> anywhere in the world and hold my own. Am I an expert? No. But I'll keep up in that conversation. Sure. I will. Well, guess where most textiles are made? In countries that are problem countries. Mm-hmm. China, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. You know, you don't have a lot of textiles made in Sweden. Oh, true. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not many. Yeah. Right? Not many. You see? Yeah. So so I, I tell everyone be be a sponge of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I try to learn something new every single day. And um you know, technology is great. Technology is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool, but it is a tool mm-hmm. that, you know, if you imagine, I look at technology like a carpenter. Mm-hmm. You have a carpenter who can build a bookcase yeah. and he's got a, a plane and he's got a chisel and he's got a saw and he's got all those things. Yeah. None of those things makes the bookcase. Sure. His brain makes the bookcase. Yeah. No matter what we do, Right. No matter what happens, at the end of the day, the chisel is not going to chisel itself. Mm-hmm. The carpenter chisels and knows how much pressure to apply mm-hmm. and how much to take off and how to level it and how to use all these other things. That's very much how we need to think about technology from a tradecraft perspective. Sure. Because what happens is, as soon as you become the left for something, it's not available to you. Mm-hmm. The moment you become beholden on GPS, is the moment that GPS gets turned off. Sure. And if you don't know how to use a map, you're in deep kimchi. And now you're a guy with all these wonderful skills that has no idea where he is. And that's pretty terrible. Yeah. That's pretty terrible. Oh, that's all right. I mean, um, the best example that I, that I can give is that I had to write a letter and my computer didn't work anymore because there was no power. It was a, uh, a rolling power out chart. And I had to write it by hand. Right. I was like, yeah, I don't have spelling check. You know? <laughs> so right. you have to, you have to think about these things that you don't have them. And then when you don't have them, it's like, oh, wait a second. You know, normally I rely on the spell check or, you know what I mean? These type of very benign things, but that when you don't have them all of a sudden, yeah. everything changes. you know, again, I, I, I love technology. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really I'm getting really into chat GPT sure. and you know, all these great things, these are great tools mm-hmm. and they're awesome. And it's, you know, I'm happy that I lived this long to have all these wonderful benefits. Yeah. However, however, sometimes those benefits are here. And if you don't have the foundational knowledge, mm-hmm. it doesn't help, you, you know, and you can find yourself in a memory, and it's happened to me, mm-hmm. 
and it's definitely happened to me. Uh, we saw a lot of this in, in, in Russian occupied Ukraine, where in the in the south, cell phone providers were switching, uh-huh. and towers were being blown up, and they were up and down, and power would come and go, and sometimes radios would work, and sometimes only cell phones would work, but no data. Yeah. So you can make a cellular call, but you couldn't send a text message, yeah. and all kinds of things. So, but, uh, you know, being being able to the more diverse you are, the more you're able to handle sure. challenges that you can't predict, yeah. and that is what that is what the the current threat is all about. Yeah. Who knows? You know, everyone lives on WhatsApp, mm-hmm. everyone lives on Signal, everyone uses VPN. Well, guess what? VPN, Signal, and WhatsApp don't work in China. Mm-hmm. They don't work. So if I'm going to recruit an asset digitally in China, then all the tools that I live on every single day don't work. Well, how? Well, then, then what? Then what? Can I get WeChat in America? No. If you do that, you get pinged by the... Then the Chinese know that you're Americans. That kind of stinks. Mm-hmm. And the FBI comes knocking on your doors. That stinks even mm-hmm. worse. So you can't do that. So how... how you know, how do you peel that banana? Mm-hmm. Do I use a subsource somewhere else? You know, but think thinking through, thinking through how we're going to deal with any number of challenges sure. is is really important. And I tell people, don't get wrapped around the, the other thing I tell people is you are going to make mistakes, mm-hmm. period. You will. I, I have come so close to getting myself killed mm-hmm. because I'm stupid, not because of the enemy, because of turn left and I should have turned right yeah. and I should have known to turn left. All kinds of stuff. So when those things happen, the number one thing to do is to learn. Sure. Learn, learn, and don't make that mistake twice. Yeah. First time, shame on them. Second time, shame on you. Yeah. You know? Right, good. And um, people ask me all the time, what should they make? What should they study in college? Mm-hmm. In America, yeah. I want to join an agency. I want to become a human guy. I want to do this. What should I study in college? I tell everybody, English. Having proper command of the English language is so important. Absolutely, if you're an intelligence officer, absolutely, you could be, you, you could be James Bond, and 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 have eyes on Osama bin in Abbottabad in you know five years earlier, and there you are, and it's totally him before he was killed sure. in 2011. It's totally him, and you write up your your intelligence report and you push send. If it's written like a three year old. The analyst, who is the one who actually reads your stuff, mm-hmm. is going to not give you credibility because you don't know how to write. Sure. Absolutely. And your wonderful intel that could change the world is valued poorly based on your poor command of the English language. Mm-hmm. Not based on the intelligence that you collected, yeah. based on your ability to convey that to a decision maker, mm-hmm. which is what the intelligence community is all about. Yeah. We don't actually make decisions. Sure. We're on the straight. Mm-hmm. You know, going to dinner all the time yeah. and working in bars and restaurants. Yeah. You know, the decision makers will make a decision based on the credibility, based on your credibility. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to write yeah. and you can't articulate your observations as an intelligence professional, you can have the best intelligence in the world. No one's going to listen yeah. to you. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed all that information. And I would like to say, Thank you to all the guests that we had on during season two. I wanted to thank Milo. Milo is our producer with a fantastic job he's been doing this season and, and last season. And uh, I want to say, guys, this is the last episode of season two. We are taking a little summer break to enjoy, to spend some time with our family. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website because we are still producing intelligence and reports and interesting articles that's continuing uh, every day. Also our social media, we're very active there and please keep an eye out for the intelligence school that we've set up. So, um, we are going to go soon into the introduction of the courses specifically and, uh, the timelines. So a lot of people have signed up already for it. Don't wait too long for the first cohort. We will have maximum a hundred spots. So we will keep it to that hundred spots. So just giving you guys a heads up on that. We haven't opened up registration for the courses yet, just for interest. So register so you can keep an eye out for any updates. 
thank you everybody for supporting us. Thank you for all the lovely messages, all the not so lovely messages that we've been able to learn from. Please keep supporting us. And as I say at every episode, if you like this podcast, if you like this episode, if you want to hear more, please give us a rating. And if we deserve it, give us a five-star rating and leave us uh, a review. It really helps us and helps us to do better and to, to make better content for you guys. And uh, I hope to see you soon. We have a couple of little uh, surprises to keep uh, you guys to go through the summer where we will do a couple of bonus episodes. I'm not going to say exactly what, but uh, some interesting content will be coming your way. So we're not completely going off. We're just taking a hiatus of the podcast in its current form, but we will be back soon enough. Thank you and enjoy your summer all winter, depending on where you are and talk to you guys soon. Goodbye.